We're going to continue with our study on the doctrine of church discipline. This is sermon number 19. We are coming toward the end of this series. Uh, we probably only have maybe one or two more sermons on it. We're going to be looking now, having looked at discipline, excommunication, and then removal from our midst, from our fellowship in that sense. Removal from the care and the oversight of the church. But what's next? Is that the end? Do we leave it there? Do we say, good riddance, we're glad you're gone. If you love your brothers in Christ, you cannot say that. Your heart should be broken. You've lost someone that you have loved, cared for, you've shared your life and word with, and now they're gone. That is not where it ends. It cannot. That's not our hope. It was not our purpose of bringing discipline to the lives of those whom profess openly that they love the Lord Jesus Christ. And that they have surrendered to his authority, his lordship. It's what salvation is all about. I'm going to put off the evil workings of my life and I'm going to put on the righteous workings that are given to me by the power of the Spirit of God. And so it is we have this duty and responsibility to be able to go yet a step further. And the next step is this, restoring fellowship. Restoration is what we've been preaching on. But it's important to understand that restoration isn't just to the local church. It's never been the object. The restoration is to Christ. With all that we believe and all that we teach. And there's no question, the Reformed faith is very complex. There's a lot of duty and work in it. Not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. It can truly be very complex in dealing with it. But if the purpose is to make us walk that straight and narrow path, the only way you can do that is to truly be in love with the king who has given his life for you. It's what salvation's all about. All we're doing is restoring that communion, that union with Christ which will manifest itself in the way that you openly deal with his bride, the church. 
when true communion is restored, when a person really is restored, when there is restoration, reconciliation, that which has happened is now seen it's been good for me. It has been an act of love to keep me on the straight and the narrow. Now, if your church takes a stick and beats you in discipline, that's just abuse. If the church says to you, hey, don't come to church unless you're all dressed alike, you look alike, you talk alike. That's just abuse. Can't tell you that. What I can tell you is what's in the word and nothing more. Because you're only bound by the word of God. Pastor Jason just was explaining that. The very means of God's grace begins with the word. Everything else is built off of that word. Whether it be prayer or whether it be the Lord's Supper. The only way those are established is valid means of God's working in our life to draw us near to him. It's through the word itself. The spirit who wrote the word bearing witness with your spirit that that word is not analogous to God's word or thought, but it is the very thought of God. It is as if God is speaking to you directly. It doesn't get any more personal than that. That's what the divines are saying. When you have the word of God, you literally have the word of God. When a church preaches the word of God, you could truly put out on your placard in front of the building, God meets with us. For us, it's two o'clock in the afternoon. Come hear God. Because when you preach and teach the word, you're just preaching and teaching the truth of God. Nothing more, nothing less. And so it is. Discipline becomes so important. But it doesn't end with the removing of a person. There is yet more to be done. And the next thing to seek, the next thing to hope, to desire from within your heart is restoration. One of the reasons why when somebody comes and says, well, you know, we left over there and we had bad feelings, the answer is, we'll go back and make it right with them. And then when you've done that, we'll talk to them. And if they're okay, we'll bring you in to the church. Why? Because restoration means to restore the union and communion, the fellowship, the love. And if you're not willing to fully restore, 
you don't have real repentance. You're only fooling yourself. And you're hoping you'll fool others who fall for your trickery of stating, oh, I have no problem with you. Yes, everything's back to normal, but it's not, is it? It really isn't. Big lie. And because we just so often don't want the conflict, we go, oh, that's great. But that's not restoration. That's not restoring the fellowship. The apostolic church, and I'm not talking about of the apostolic age, I'm talking about the apostolic church, where I grew up in Ohio, which is very uh, well known there, have a requirement. Now, exactly what they're trying to accomplish, I've never looked into it that much detail, but I know this, the people that I went to school with, if they wanted to join the church, they would have to go back to every person that they had wronged or sinned with and ask for forgiveness. And I'll say one thing about them. Whatever their purpose is besides that, they understand you need to clean your life up. You need to change your life. You need to restore a right relationship not built on sin or upon abuse or being mean or having whatever it is you've done, lied, stolen, cheated, whatever the case may be. You need to make restoration and make right with these people. Why don't we require the same thing? I tell you, people sometimes, we think that they're restored, and they go on their way, and yet they harbor in their heart hatred. Hatred toward those who would dare confront them with the word of God. And having been in the pastoral ministry for 47 years, I can tell you now, the times you've had to deal with discipline, I can tell you how ugly that hatred can be. You lose your friends, people that you thought, this is one of the best friends I've ever had. And they end up being one of the worst enemies throughout the rest of your life. It's sad. And even if they say they're restored, they're really not. But that's what we want is real restoration. Does that mean they can come back and they have to come back and they have to stay here? No, we'd love for them to do that. If we ever remove somebody from the church, from its fellowship, if we ever put them in that situation, 
Yes, we'd like for them to come and be here. It's like a part of the family. When they come and make things right, and they demonstrate that rightness, and yet they want to move on. I don't know their heart. I don't know why they want to move on. I don't know. Have you ever been disciplined at home? It makes you mad. You get angry. You're mad at your mom. You're mad at your dad. Finally, you get over it. You go back. You make it right. You hug. You make up. Did you then look at him and say, now I want to go and leave home? I've never seen that. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. It's too good. Mom and dad's paying for everything. <laughs> I don't want to leave that. But that's what they do often to their own church. Don't you think there's something just a little wrong with that? I do. Does it grieve me? Of course it grieves me. When you're a pastor, you've got to live with it every day, every night of your life. Because God gave you a job to do. But the great thing is, some point God says, hey, you did everything you could do. They've not rejected you. They've rejected him. And thus, we haven't restored him. Very important. So we've looked at Matthew 18, 15 through 20 as we have gone through this. We've talked about what church discipline is. I will not read it again. We've read it a lot. You should know it almost by heart by now. And we've talked about the very concept of discipline being really a learning or teaching educational or tutoring understanding. It's based on a knowledge. Not a feeling. Not emotions. It's based on knowledge. And so it is we turn to this concept of Restoring to fellowship. The restoration that must come. And this speaks to the hope of all the parishioners of the church. Isn't that what you want to happen? It's what I want to happen. I've already been involved usually as pastor long before you get to this point. I say, how can I help you? How can I work with you? What can I do in counseling you? How can we make it work to the glory of God? I'll spend time with you. I'll pray with you. I'll be there if you need me 
24 hours. Call me, wake me up if you have to. But in the end, you're hated. And that's the telling story that there's no restoration. There's no real communion. Something's gone wrong. We have a desire to see the very thing happen with loved ones from our church. If we have to act in discipline toward them, to see the very story of the prodigal son Returned. And I've always told you about the story of the prodigal pig. Yeah, well, you won't find it in your Bible, but it's kind of in my translation, which says, look, when the prodigal son came home, he had a friend he brought with him. Remember, he was eating at the hog trough. He had a friend, and it was a hog. Brought him home. They cleaned him up, put a big bow on his neck, set him down at the feasting table, and said to him, here, Here's your food, it's on your plate. Here's your knife, here's your fork, here's your spoon. Here's your napkin, go at it. And he ain't happy, why? It's not the way he eats. You know why a pig is called a hog? Because the very front of his nose is historically what was the hog. Because he's stuck in his food, he's a hog. And he ain't going to be happy. He's going to look at that food on the plate. And he's going to look at those forks, knives, the napkins. He's going to see everybody else eating with great courtesy and kindness. And being very careful about how they give appearance. And he's unhappy. Why? It's not in his nature. It is in the nature of the prodigal son. He went to eat in the pig trough. Didn't like it, and when he came home, he was so glad the party was given. He wasn't eating at the pig trough. He was happy. But pig, his friend, not so happy. And this is often what happens. People come back, but their nature isn't changed. They're not really a son, they're a pig. I don't mean that derogatory. I'm just saying that's their nature. They don't want to eat properly. They just want to hog it down. Stick my face in the slop and let me eat. And that's a lot of what sin does in the life of a Christian. Restoration is set forth by Paul in first or in second Corinthians chapter two and verses five through eleven. But if anyone has caused grief, Paul says, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. Not to be too severe, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. You 
have agreed together to shame him for his sin. Now he's returned. You have received him. Now in receiving him, you got to learn to forgive him. You got to put that sin behind. The transgression is over. Comfort him. Why? Paul says it. Lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. He's overcome by your anger, your rejection, your hatred, your standoffishness. He says, therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. It's part of the restoration. And when you really love somebody, you forgive them. You'll learn that when you get married one day. It'll be a great teaching program. When you love, you will reaffirm your commitment to that individual. Love is the fulfillment of the law of God. The law of God is how we learn to love. We don't violate people. How many times do we have to say it? We don't transgress the law of God in discipline. For to this end, Paul says, I also wrote that I might put to you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now the church is being tested. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgotten anything, I have forgiven that one for your sake in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now three factors basically stand out here. First, the penitent offender must be forgiven. That's what Paul says. Secondly, he must be assisted. You are to assist him in his forgiveness. You are with him. You're encouraging him. You're loving him. You're reaffirming your commitment. And third, he must be reinstated in love. Love is the fulfillment of the law of God. Then by keeping the law of God, you reinstate him. You don't lie to him. You don't cheat him. You don't steal. You don't violate the first four commandments toward him. You don't commit adultery against him. You don't do anything that would violate the law of God. True love. True restoration. You're back. And I love you. And all is forgiven. These factors come to the forefront in verses 6 and 8 here. While in 1 Corinthians 5, 
Paul's sternness was evident. Here his tenderness, though, is clearly apparent. For Paul, both are important. To neglect either sternness or forgiveness is wrong. This balance is rare in the church. It's something you work toward. It's something you learn over time to do. It doesn't come real natural. Closest thing to it would be in the home. Of which it should be. To show us how to socially forgive and love and move on. Most churches are weighted toward one or the other. If you're too willing to forgive without restoration or repentance, that's a problem. If you're not willing to forgive once restoration and repentance has come, that too is a problem. You see, the balance, it's a very hard thing. Christianity is a very narrow path. But God expects balance. Forgiveness is a promise in which one person goes on record as declaring he will never again bring up another's offense or hold it against him. Man, when forgiveness is gone, if they truly have forgiven, they shut their mouth. It's over. I had a friend in his marriage. He said to me one time, things are not right at home. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, we argue, we fight. And I said, about what? He said, well, it goes from us to opening the door to our family and then throwing all kinds of things at your family. You know, when you've run out of one good argument, yes, but you're a drunken mother. You know what I'm saying when I'm, you know, how that goes? Your family. So just like you, your family does this and does that. He just said, it's like, it's, and it is. When two people get in that kind of fight in a marriage, they open up the doors to their life and they just hurdle at each other. You know what? No matter what they say, you could say, well, they're communicating not very well. One waits for the other to throw his rocks and then he picks up his and throws them back at him. Forgiveness says that doesn't happen. Never brought up again. Unless you continue in a pattern of sin. But apart from that, you forgive them. You forgive them. When they have asked for forgiveness. But forgiving means also they'll never do it again. You'll never bring it back up. They'll never do it. 
In short, we might say the past is a debt that is discharged. They're no longer liable. That the matter is closed must be emphasized. The congregation must close it as well. Lest we end up back in sin because there is a lack of forgiveness on our part. To be clear, forgiveness is not forgetting. Do not think that. Nor does the Bible tell us to forget. It tells us to forgive. How does God forgive? He does forget, but promises not to hold our sin against us any longer. He doesn't say, you know what? Now you're back and you're not a sinner saved by grace. You're just saved by grace. No, you're still a sinner saved by grace. For example, read in Jeremiah 31. In verse 34, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Forgiveness and the remembrance is put aside. It's gone. To remember our sins no more is to work actively at not raising the matter. That's what it is. Don't bring it back up. That's important. Because the sin in time, in true restoration, will fade from the memory becomes unimportant. It happens with parents. Little Johnny gets in trouble. Mom and dad get angry. Little Johnny comes in and he lies about it. They know better. And they discipline him. Finally he comes and says, I've done wrong. Forgive me. Don't do it again. We love you. We're not going to forget that you sinned, but we'll put it behind us. We'll not raise it again. The matter's closed. So many parents don't do that. And the children live under a burden that their parents have created. It's not biblical. But in time, the memory of the event fades. And it is no longer important. Because the child has now done what is right. And he hasn't done it again. The promise to forgive can be kept. A promise to forget cannot be kept. Not always. The two are not the same. Forgiveness is granted upon repentance. Why so? Paul gives two reasons to us here. First, there are always those who want to exact a pound of flesh. 
getting even is important. And second, there are those who want to be sure that the repentance is genuine. Not so according to Jesus. Jesus says to forgive on the basis of his naked word. Luke 17.4 says, And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive. Boy, that's tough, isn't it? You see, the burden is really on you to not bring it back up. He's not to sin. But he says, even if he does it seven times, but he comes back and says, oh, I did you wrong again. I repent. Then forgive me. The church must make a formal declaration of forgiveness. Placing it on the record and thereby closing the matter. It is not to be brought back up again. If a new event comes, then the church, in dealing with its evidence and issues and looking into it, has got to consider that. A pattern is emerging. The guy says, I'll never steal again. And yet, he's stolen every hubcap on every car in the parking lot and sold them. Hubcaps aren't as worth as much as they used to be at all. Most of them don't even have my all thing anymore. But you get the point? When a pattern emerges, something's wrong with the repentance. He's breaking it over and over again. And if he keeps coming back saying, I repent, I repent, I repent, I repent, he's not really repenting. Where are the fruits of his repentance? Where's the change of heart, of the mind? to want to steal no more. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.7, So that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with what? Too much sorrow. We just read that. Too much sorrow. But at the same time, he's got to change too. He's got to stop his sinning. The word for assist here is translated also from the Greek as comfort, to help, to comfort, to assist. Literally, it means to call alongside for assistance, to come alongside for. Sadly, this part is often lacking. Consequently, a person who's reinstated, but yet dealt with this way, fall away from the church, its fellowship, its communion, and back into their sin. What kind of help is the church to provide? 
counseling, prayer, encouragement. But the church must be able to help him and counsel him in his problem. The church must provide help in order that they may be reassimilated into the body, including new social interactions according to the law of God. And lastly, there is the reaffirmation of love. Reaffirming love is an interesting phrase, is it not? The word reaffirm comes from a Greek word meaning to reinstate one to a position. It speaks of formal restoration to full membership. It speaks of restoring to the penitent brother all the rights and privileges of membership that were taken away as punishment for his unrepented attitude and his sinful actions. Formal reinstatement must be as public as was the dismissal. Think about it. Think of the story of the prodigal son. He was given a robe, a ring, and a party in his honor, testifying to the love and forgiveness of the Father. We can do no less when it comes to our returning brother. We must give them, we don't have to be a robe and a ring, but we must give them honor and love and celebrate. What a wonderful thing. They're back. Praise God. They want to do what God says. They want to live the way God has commanded them to live their life. Restoration of an offender to the flock is a joyous time for the church. Think of all that you've had to do Usually counseling is involved ahead of time. What's the counseling for? To restore you out of your sin. To get you moving down the path and get yourself right back into the path of righteousness. And then when you fall back into sin and then you will not be restored, when you no longer will listen, you no longer will receive biblical counseling. And there are going to be people who say, yeah, I'll I'll receive the counseling. But they come ready to argue and fight. They're not there for counseling. They're going through the motions. They don't want to learn how to overcome their sin. They want to argue of whether or not they're in sin. And you've worked to that, and then you put them under discipline, and you've worked to do everything you can do to restore them, and you followed all the steps to the point of removing them 
from the fellowship and the oversight of the church. You've declared them. As far as we are concerned at this time, we've done everything we can do and we're fruit inspectors, which God said we ought to be. And there just ain't no fruit of righteousness here. They cannot be Christians and live the life they're living. They can put on a piety. They can put on a false righteousness, but it is not the righteousness of Christ. You know why? They haven't been restored. They haven't resolved all those issues. And what they want to do is start over and put it behind them. But God says you can't put it behind you and just start over. When you have broken your vows, when you've lived in sin, and the very people who loved you and counseled you and worked with you, you've walked away from. Restoration means coming back. Restoring the fellowship. Too often restoration just doesn't happen. Oh, we hear about it. Oh, we're sorry. But we're going to go over here. And that's the last you hear of them. That's the last you see of them. Man, if they were family members, you know they're going to come around at some point. Well, there are family members. Why would you leave our family? You know, because they are going to stick their nose into our sinful business. That's why. Okay. Don't you think something's wrong there? Don't you think something needs to be fixed? Well, I do. And the Reformed Church says it does too. We want real restoration. Why? Your family. Do you think we can be happy with you gone? The love and the fellowship that we had established, you have broken and put to death, and you've stomped on us and said, I will not have anything to do with you. But you can't be restored if that's your attitude, if that is your actions. You can't be restored. It's just not possible. That's foolishness. If you believe that, then you have really fooled yourself. And if somebody's told you that, they've lied to you. Does that mean you couldn't go somewhere else? No, it doesn't mean you couldn't go somewhere else. You don't believe what we believe? You're not going to be happy here. Can't stop you if you want to go. Once you're restored, you can go anywhere. But why would you? When people love you enough to say to you, you must stop your sin.
they're honest enough to tell you the truth. You gotta stop your sin. You can't live in it. Why would you go in any place else? Why would you leave home? Why would you do anything that would be so abnormal to what ought to be natural to become unnatural? Question is, the church has a duty to be like the father, the prodigal son. The prodigal son has a duty to be restored to his father and the family and go back home and stay there. The only person out is the pig. He doesn't fit. He is neither a son, nor does he have the nature of a son. He's not him. He just doesn't want to live that way. Those rules are not his rules. He will not be happy there. It's against his nature. Which is why I always wonder, when people get into sin, you really got to ask a question. Think about this. I want to live my life the way I want to live it. God ain't going to tell me what to do. The church ain't going to tell me what to do. We're going to do it the way we want to do it. We think we're right. If you love your sin so much, why in the world do you want to go to heaven? Just admit it. I want to go to hell and I want to burn. Because I love burning in my sin. Just say it. No, you know what they want? They want to say to God, I'm going to sin, but you're not going to punish me. Bad mistake. Because I'm going to guarantee you one thing. You will burn. Mark it down. One day, if you do not seek to live in the righteousness of Christ, I didn't say perfected. I said live in it. War with sin in your life. When you die, you're going to be able to look back and say, huh, that preacher was right. <laughs> I'm burning. But you're not going to be that happy. I got news for it. When you go to hell, you're not going to play cards with the devil, drink beer, and chase women and smoke cigars. You're going to smoke cigars and drink beer, you better go to heaven. Because that isn't what they play in hell. And if you think that, and if you think you're going to get away from God, an all-knowing being who you can't hide a thought from, You are sadly mistaken. But we must be willing to forgive. That's our duty to love, have compassion, and restore. And they must stop sinning and return home. And give us 
their love and commitment in life to Christ and to his bride. Shall we pray?